So <clears throat> first thing I'm going to do is sort of test out my voice. <clears throat> Still not feeling so strong on this side. So just how does it sound in the room? It's okay? The volume's okay? Okay, so it won't be. Oh, it needs to go up just a little bit, yeah. Okay. Because I don't want to... I don't want to strain my voice. Still feels a little croaky and not very strong. Now it's starting to echo, so we need to bring it down. (laughs) We don't want that. Maybe so. I think this is probably where we'll need it to be. Is that all right? Okay. So tonight, I want to um, weave together two fairly significant teachings. Um, And both of them could be uh, individual Dharma talks. And um, having said that, each one of those talks is a list of five. And each one of those five could be another whole Dharma talk. So that's 10. (laughs) (laughs) So when I was doing the math, you know, that's about 10 hours. (laughs) So um, I'll be doing some editing here tonight while I'm presenting this. So, um, and I haven't done it quite like this before. So, but I feel um, really inclined to to do this because I was weaving some things together um, in my own understanding. And uh, I just loved how it kind of all fit together there. It was like a little puzzle, and it all fit. And I thought, maybe there's a way I could offer this. And um, uh, as you know, the Buddha, in the Buddha's teachings, there are many lists. Right? And that's the way the map of the path has been presented to us and kind of simplify it as much as possible in all these many, many, many different lists and um, and so I've taken a couple of these lists. I think that's often how we derive our Dharma talks anyhow. You know, it's a nice little template. So in this particular one, um, or two, <laughs> uh, I want to begin with uh, what's called the, the five indriyas. And the five indriyas is... Uh, really uh, almost pre-Buddhist because it comes from um, the, the word Indriya is connected to one of the Vedic Indian gods called Indra. And Indra carries the connotation of, of dominance and control. So very strong, very strong god, very strong force. And what these indriyas are, are, they're translated as the five spiritual faculties. And when they're developed, which is what we're doing here, and that's what I'll, I'll talk about a little bit, is they develop into what's called the five spiritual powers. And it's really the power that drives our practice, drives our um, practice that leads to awakening liberation. And there's a, there's a power that develops in our practice that then, then propels us along the path to greater and greater 
understanding, greater and greater liberation. These five faculties or mental factors are already here. There we all, they're inherent in our consciousness. They are what makes up the mind of the Buddha, the awakened mind. And yet we're not very generally very conscious of them. And one of the beautiful things about being offered this as a template is that we can begin to identify them and begin to cultivate and develop these qualities of our minds so that they get stronger, more developed, and can guide our practice. And when we train in meditation, this is actually what we're training in. And it'll all make sense once I tell you what they are. So um, until we really start to uh, bring them forth and understand them as they are, they really are more just uh, revealed as potentials, the potential of the awakened mind. And so then we, we, we develop these and strengthen them. So what they are are, some, are five faculties that you're going to be very familiar with. But when you start to think about how they work together, that's what matters and that's what, what, what makes them powerful. And the first one is uh, often just called faith or trust, confidence. You know, as we have this, this trust or this confidence in the way things are. And I'm going to explain a little bit more about each one of these after I name them. So this quality of confidence... And, and the confidence as we start to feel more grounded in that, that gives rise to energy. We have more energy for the practice, the second faculty. So that energy is a, is a lot of what we've been speaking about, that quality of being more aliveness or awakeness. We're, we're trying to cultivate more of that energetic um, feel so that then that gives rise to the third factor, which is mindfulness. So faith is in place, the energy starts to rise, then the mind becomes more capable of paying attention. So so mindfulness is considered a spiritual faculty which develops into a power. And as the mindfulness starts to develop, it, it gives rise to the fourth factor, which is concentration which is really when the mind becomes even stronger and more one-pointed and we can really focus on and sustain that attention on what's happening in the present moment. So, so I, I, maybe you could get a sense of the building already, just the building up of this power of the mind, even through the faith, the trust, the confidence, the energy that starts to come, being able to pay more attention, sustaining that attention, having more uh, uh, concentration in the mind, being able to really focus, which then is what gives rise to the condition for wisdom. It opens the door, it opens the gate for wisdom to come forth. It's not like wisdom just kind of comes along sort of randomly. <laughs> you know, these, these factors need to be in place to empower that movement through the doorway of wisdom. And then as that wisdom and insight and understanding starts to develop, of course, this gives rise to more confidence. 
you have more confidence. We see things more clearly, and, 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 and there's less doubt, less confusion. And then as that confidence starts to build, there's more energy. There's more capacity for mindfulness, more capacity for concentration, more capacity for wisdom. And it just circles around. And I love that sense of the, of the, of the cycling uh, of these faculties because I can start to feel that as they, as they increase and get stronger and more developed, there's, that I can feel the power that starts to get generated through that. And in a way, you know, it's not necessarily personal. It's not like, oh, now I am more powerful. You know, now I get to uh, feel really good about myself and my practice. Is this is just what happens when the mind starts to wake up. And as we wake up, we see more clearly into the nature of things, and we also see that it's not me. It's not mine. I can't own this. I can't take ownership of this. But it is the nature of the awakened mind itself. So these are often called the five priceless jewels. And that is because when they're well-developed, they support the mind to resist the negative forces in the mind. Because otherwise those forces overwhelm, and this is what we see in retreat, they overwhelm the mind, and we can get caught in those difficult mind states right, of wanting and resistance and aversion and doubt and confusion and uh, tiredness. And, and so, so, so these qualities, these jewels, start to take take a form in the mind, and they override, they overcome those negative forces. They're also, that, that's the reason they're also called the controlling faculties, because they control the mind in this way. They control these negative forces and generate power that leads to greater awakening. So I want to talk a little bit about each one and, and, then, sh- and then that show what's what gets in the way, which is that second list, which gets in the way of each one. And as I name the, and review these faculties, take a little bit of time as you listen and reflect on how these each are living in you. What's your, what's your sense of how developed and how alive these are in you? Do they feel weak? Do they feel strong? Is there somewhere in between? And maybe more importantly, is there actually a willingness and an interest to develop your mind in this way? Because when we really understand what's happening and that there's a real technology in how this works, it does give us confidence to continue to practice in this way. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful system that, the, the, that the, these teachings um, uh, reveal. It's a beautiful technology as we start to understand it more and more. So the first one, faith or trust and confidence, generally, traditionally, um, in the Buddhist teachings, it's really having confidence in the Buddha's awakening, that there was someone 
called Siddhartha Gautama, a man, a human man who's walking this earth, who had that compulsion to wake up and woke up. And that his mind is of the same nature as my mind, as your mind. There's no difference. Each one of us has that, is that Buddha mind. And so we have, we have confidence in that awakening, which we talk about when we take refuge in the Buddha. We have confidence in that awakening, and then we have confidence in the path that was laid out before us, the Dharma, the Buddha Dharma. And that there is a way that we can follow that. We can practice that. And it gives rise to the sense that there is something greater than the way things appear, this kind of conventional reality, this ordinary reality, you know, just the kind of this way we just go about our day and go about things that are happening in our world, that there's actually something more here. And perhaps we don't have the view or the subtle perception of that just yet, but there's a way we trust that. We have confidence in that. Something's awoken. Something has wakened up within us that we want to, we're curious, we're interested to follow that along. And you would not be sitting in this room right now if that confidence or that faith hasn't already awoken within your own heart and your own mind. You wouldn't wouldn't be here and you couldn't be here. (laughs) It's too difficult. It's too hard to really sit and really look at your own mind and heart unless there's some kind of confidence in what you're doing. You may not understand it or know what you're doing, but there's already that spark. There's already that trust. And that happens at some point, that just there's some point where something cracks open. And, and, it, and we know people who that hasn't happened for, but we also may be aware of when that did happen for us. And just, to, just briefly to say, for me, when I was 19 years old, I was, I was living a very sort of ordinary, conventional life. I had no real sense of spiritual connection or religious connection at that point. And I was in my first year of college, and I remember um, really suffering <laughs> I was really suffering. Things were very confusing. Maybe that's not atypical for 19. I don't know. I don't know a lot of 19-year-olds these days. But I was really confused about life. And I remember going home for um, a break, one of the breaks, and it was warm, and I was lying in my backyard. And I was just lying there very peacefully. And all of a sudden, I recognized that in that moment, I was happy. I wasn't suffering in that moment. There was a real real awareness like, oh, suffering's not here right now. It's not continuous. It's not a block. It's not that there is permanent. Oh, it ended. And I felt the relief, and I felt the lightness, I felt the openness, and it was like pleasure. It was like, ah. And I really let myself have that, and I gave into it. And I now recognize that was my first awakening, when there was something other than that solid block of pain and suffering. 
Not that that lasted that long. <laughs> it was a very, very temporary, and maybe it took mm, about another seven years before I stepped on a real spiritual path of meditation when I was about 27. And, and that's when I hit the wall another time. Life got so hard, so painful, um, and I stepped onto the path of meditation, and that's when it all started opening up again for me. So, so there's that something awakens in us. Maybe we catch it that one time. Maybe it sustains itself for a while. But at some point, it takes hold, this faith, this confidence. And then we, we see that the difficulties don't actually go away. We just have more confidence in how to deal with them without even having to understand so well or know where we're going. There's just kind of a, 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 a confidence, a trust that things will be okay. And I may have more trust in my own capacity and sense of possibility. Just a more openness, a more lightness, a more of an ease. And that's the, there's a path that starts to open up there. And it begins to remove the doubt, brings a little bit more clarity. And then as that opens up and we let go, the energy starts to rise. Rather than just being so constricted and contracted and tight and kind of caught up in that uh, kind of solid block of pain sometimes is what it feels like. It opens up, loosens up. We've been really talking a lot about that, extra uh, exercising a lot with that, that movement, that opening. And then energy starts to come, the second factor, right? Which also has to do with the willingness. The energy brings a kind of willingness to move forward, to go forward, to take that next step, right? Sometimes we feel like we just can't take that next step and we can feel almost frozen or you know, immobile and I know this very well in my own my own path, path path, but sometimes just like something something opens up and there's energy to to to, to take that that next step. And this energy, the energy is what allows the mind to come back to the present moment. And we know when there isn't that energy there, it just kind of falls flat. We can't even lift the mind to the object of what's in front of us. It's just, even just the mind paying attention to anything just feels like too much effort. But sometimes that energy is just moving and it's light and we're in connection with and contact with what's occurring. And it's very easy, very effortless, very natural. And it's this energy that really allows us to let go and begin again. You can begin again. Like, it's okay. The sense of the, the faith and the confidence that it's okay. And then the energy that says, yes, keep, keep going. Keep, keep going forward. We feel the mind more wakeful. We work with balancing that energy. We're not leaning quite as much into the future. We're not worrying so much about the past. Not resisting so much of what's here not as tight, maybe not as loose, really finding that more of that balance of our energy. And this is really what brings the capacity then to be more mindfully aware. Right? 
See, now, now the conditions are, are, are in place that we can really pay attention. The mind lifts up to what's here in this present moment. This third spiritual faculty that develops into a power, mindfulness, mindful awareness, which we've been talking about, this capacity to pay attention, having the energy to pay attention. It's a natural capacity just to attend to what's happening, whatever is happening, whatever is before us in this present moment. And we know it. There's a quality of knowing, knowing what's happening. And that mindfulness, when it's developed, it's like a clear mirror that reflects whatever is before it. There's no, no, not even any preference, really. It's just seeing, seeing what is clear, objective reflection. Ah, it's like this. Ah, it's like this. And it has this lovely, kind of almost childlike quality of interest. It's interested. It has the energy, right? The energy, and it just wants to know, wants to understand. What, what, I've, I've been looking at the, 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 I've been fascinated by the ice on the trees, the ice on the branches, and particularly the ice out here on the cherry trees, which just encase those red berries in ice, glittering, <laughs> glittering ice. And this, this, whole, this whole yard, just sometimes the light hits it in such a way that it's almost like it has internal twinkle, twinkly lights. It's, it's phenomenal. You know? And to, to have the peace of mind, the stillness of mind, and the energy to be able to just pay attention and take in the delight, the joy, the happiness that brings it, isn't it phenomenal that nature displays itself like this occasionally? I have the sense I'll never see it again in the rest of my life. I, I don't know if those conditions will come together again. So there's just this like, wow, how fascinating. This is the quality of mindfulness. There's a, there's a delight in it. There's a kind of happiness or joy with what's happening, whatever it is. I mean, even sometimes there's a lot of pain or, or difficulty, but because I'm awake, because I'm here for it, brings a kind of happiness. It's, a, it's almost counterintuitive to understand that. But the fact that I can be present with my experience, even when it's difficult and hard, makes me happy. I'm really pleased, given where I came from and the experiences that I had, you know, many uh, years ago. I'm delighted. <laughs> and I feel that happiness in, my, in the presence and the quality of being able to be present with a whole range of experience now. And so when that energy is balanced and mindfulness is alert, that alertness, the energy of mind, it strengthens the into the fourth power of concentration. And this is that we've been talking about this now, the kind of the gathering, the unifying, the collectedness, which really I can feel the power in that. When we can really sustain our attention on something, using the example of the 
of the, the ice on the branches, just to be able to be so still and steady of mind that it can just be there without any effort. But because the delight and the happiness generates that quality of concentration, the mind can stay focused without jumping from one thing to the next, that that quality of distraction that we all know so well, where the mind isn't able to stay very steady. And the Buddha has this wonderful metaphor where he says that this, this kind of restless mind, the mind that isn't able to stay steady, is like a fish flapping on the shore that has lost its way from the ocean. It's just like the mind. The mind just, you could just, I just love that image because it's just so, so graphic. Of you know, the mind, the, the, the fish is just flopping all over the beach. It can't find its source. It can't find its way back home. And the, the finding, when, it, when the fish finally finds its way back to the water and, and then rests and swim, that's that quality of the concentration, the mindfulness and the concentration coming together. This, this steadying in the face of all the changing, uh, the changing experiences. And the mind feels spacious, uncluttered, more light. Things can flow through the mind without getting snagged. We don't get caught as much. It's just the flow. We feel the flow of, of phenomena uh, coming and going. It's just, just like water. The mind is almost like water. And that quality of clarity and brightness in the mind, the clear seeing, then gives rise to the wisdom, the insight, because we can see. (laughs) The mind isn't cluttered. The mind isn't distracted. Insight, the conditions for insight to arise. And this wisdom, we've talked a little about this as well, this wisdom is different from the intellectual knowing. It's more connected to the direct experience, the immediate experience of being in contact with what's happening when we're not caught up in thinking and analyzing and trying to figure something out, but this more the sense of intimacy with what's happening that, get, that allows us to really know the thing or the person, or the situation that we're engaged with. And then this wisdom brings us back to the letting go, releasing our attachments, our aversions, the places of holding. And then we can feel more and more into this sense of well-being, this ease of well-being which opens the mind, gives more confidence, gives more energy, more mindfulness, more concentration, more wisdom. Just keep developing it in that way. So those five, those five faculties, wouldn't it be nice if it was just clear sailing like that? (laughs) Right? We just sit down look at our own mind to heart, and it just starts to open up just like that. (laughs) But it doesn't happen that way. In fact, what makes up the spiritual journey is the difficulties. 
So all the obstacles, all the difficulties that we actually encounter because then we have an opportunity to explore how we're going to come into a wise relationship with the way things are. So our practice ultimately is again about this wise, this wisdom, this wise relationship with the flow of life because the flow of life is this uh, uh, continue this, this um, trajectory of pleasure and pain. Pleasure and pain. Yanai was speaking about last night. I loved how he was speaking about it. He says, there is that which is hard to bear. That which is hard to bear. And he said, that which is unattended to is what can drive our life that underlying those negative forces, those difficult forces, if they're not attended to, will drive our life. And so we're wanting to bring some awareness, bring some consciousness to those forces of mind. I love how Catherine, too, says it's a good thing. It's a good thing that is happening. You know, we want to welcome that, we want to invite that so we can put it on the table and really have a look to see what we can understand about what's going on, about our experience. So we do encounter these obstacles. And unless they're seen clearly, it feels like they block our way. They hinder. They hinder. It feels like they're hindering our way and we can't go forward and something's wrong. So the Buddha made this other list. Right? (laughs) These are the five difficult mind states. These are the obstacles. These are the obstacles that you encounter. And each one of these obstacles is an obstacle to one of the five spiritual powers. And it weaves very nicely (laughs) when we start to understand how each one of these actually get in the way of the development and the strengthening of those five powers. So when we see that clearly and have some understanding of that, we really can start to work very consciously so that these these forces are not unattended. We begin to attend to them, bring our attention to them. These five difficult mind states, the the Pali word for it is nivarana. Nivarana. And the... I love this piece because the, the, the literal translation of Nivarana is covered over. Something gets covered over. We can't see so clearly. The, the, the mind is overwhelmed by these difficult forces of mind that interfere with being able to see clearly. And so we want to uncover. <laughs> we want to uncover that so that that these 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 difficult difficult mind states aren't hindering us or in the way so what what they're the way they cover over is faith is covered over by doubt so when we get caught up in really doubting our experience doubting ourselves doubting what's happening doubting the teachings we lose connection with our faith we can't we don't have confidence anymore in what's happening And this, of course, can come and go. So we want to understand how that can actually occur when we fall into doubt. And when we fall into doubt and we lose our capacity to trust, it starts to deplete our energy. 
Right? It's kind of like we fall into a state of more contraction and we aren't able to, to access that energetic flow that supports our practice in the same way. We can start to feel sleepy and dull, right? listless. So the, um, the obstacle is the sleepiness. It's the difficult mind state of sleepiness. And when we are dull and sleepy, then this, of course, hinders our mindfulness and our concentration. Right? And so the obstacle, as we get even more clear, the obstacle to mindfulness is aversion because we're resisting what's actually happening. So we can't, we can't settle. We can't just come into contact in the fullness of what's here because we're resisting it. There's aversion to it. And the concentration starts to fall apart because we're starting to look for something else. We get caught in our sense desire. So the the hindrance to concentration is getting distracted, getting pulled away into looking for some other kind of pleasurable experience through the senses sights and sounds and tastes and smells and feels and feeling in the body, ex- pleasurable experiences. And so the mind is thrown off. We're not balanced. We're not steady. We're not just resting at home. So the obstacle to that is that being pulled out through uh, the sense doors. So, so as you can see, as this, as this, uh, the, 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 the faculties, these, these beautiful mental factors start to fall apart and these other more difficult mind states come up, our experience is going to be quite as enjoyable, <laughs> quite as pleasurable. We will start to feel more attachment and more aversion and more desire and more resistance in the mind. And that's a lot of what we find ourselves caught up in is this kind of pushing and pulling, wanting and not wanting, and we wonder why we're not feeling more satisfied. We're not feeling happier. Because true happiness really arises from being satisfied with what is, what's here now which is, can sound a little baffling, and this is really what we're working with here. How is that possible? How is it really possible to be settled when our experience is rather difficult and unpleasant? This is the very thing that we're working with. Coming into a wise and kind and compassionate relationship with what's here, whatever is here no matter what is here. How do we settle and rest in the face of it all? And then as all those other hindrances, those obstacles start to arise, sometimes called a multiple hindrance attack, right? (laughs) And it's not not that unusual, actually. When they, we feel like we're just kind of getting them from all sides. That's what really shuts down our capacity for deepening wisdom. Because the conditions are not in place 
for that awakening to insight to be here. Because the mind is just too agitated, it's too restless. So the obstacle in this model, the obstacle to the wisdom is the restless, restless mind. So again, the five, these five difficult mind states that the Buddha laid out, and it's what really what we encounter when we come to our practice, really no matter how much experience we've had, this is often what we're going to encounter, is the mind that desires the sensual pleasures, right? the wanting, the grasping mind, then the opposite, which is the resisting of what I don't like, what I don't want, pushing away, I don't want this experience, shutting down into more and more contraction. And then the next two are the sleepiness, the restlessness, sleepiness, dullness, tiredness, just kind of falling asleep. That's one of the difficult mind states. And the opposite of that, restlessness, the restless and worried mind, where the mind is just kind of flapping around and looking for something and just can't rest at all. And the last one is doubt, the doubt, which is usually often self-doubt. We start to doubt ourselves and our own capacity to be able to practice, to be able to meditate. They say that the doubt is probably the one that's most undermining of our practice. Because if the doubt takes hold, we can just say, forget it. If the doubt takes hold here to such an extent, you may just say, hey, you know, my car's in the parking lot. I'm just taking off. (laughs) Why should I stick around here? It's not working, right? It's not working for me. I don't even really think these teachers know what they're talking about. (laughs) Did the Buddha really get enlightened? You know, is this just a myth? You know, and maybe I'll just go try some Sufi dancing. You know, it's like, I'm not sure this path is for me. (laughs) You know, this is the doubt, the doubt. And you see, it really can just, the more that we believe it and take it to be a real, uh, uh, what's really happening, we just, it could just shut the whole thing down. So without mindfulness, we can so easily get identified and caught with these these difficult states of mind. Because it's the mindfulness that actually can see them for what they are, that they're just mind states. They're just moods and mind states that are impermanent, like all things are impermanent. They come and they go. Nothing stays, nothing remains. And the more that I have the confidence, the mindfulness, some concentration, and some energy, I can see them for what they are, that they're just the mind doing what minds do. And I don't have to get so caught up in the storyline of what my mind is telling me. I don't have to add more judgment and more agitation and more restlessness on top of that, more doubt. Just see, if I can, just sort of the thoughts forming a particular kind of storyline. Oh, yeah, that's what my mind is doing right now. I'm just going to see that. It's one of the hindrances. I'm going to just come back to my breath, ground more in my body, feel my feet on the floor, anchor my attention more fully into the present moment, and not give 
my mind so much attention. Right. These, are, these are the practices that we've been cultivating here. You know, how, to, how to shift the attention so I'm not so caught up in the difficulties of the mind. Have somewhere else to place my attention. Unless we're able to understand this and have some insight into the nature of these mind states, we can take them so personally, right? It's me. This is me, right? And I just, I just, my mind is just so grumpy and I'm just so resistant and I don't really, you know, I just, I just want to sleep all the time or I'm just so restless all the time. Just, it's not me. Just these mind states, these waves. Sometimes we call it waving, the mind waving. <laughs> you know, just, just these different frequencies of mind coming and going and expressing themselves in certain ways. As if we not, don't see that it's just so easy to judge ourselves and then get caught up in the judgment, which is a form of aversion. We turn that aversion towards ourselves and we make ourselves wrong or bad. Not only is something wrong there, but something's wrong here, and it's me. I'm wrong. I'm bad. Right? So we just so ease. It's such a slippery slope to go there. Right? So we work with this in our practice in this way. Now, if I had another hour, <laughs> I would love to go through each one of these and each one of these hindrances, these difficulties. But fortunately, there's a lot of talks on Dharma seed, on the hindrances. <laughs> and so it's easy just to, to you know, pick one of those up and just start to understand them a little bit more. But what I do want to do is I want to read the, um, the Buddha has this lovely metaphor for each one of these um, from the text. And I think listening to the text... Um, and just getting a sense of the feel and the energetic feel for each one of these difficult states of mind can really help us feel into it a little bit more. And this is from um, the Anguttara Nikaya, one of the Pali texts, um, these similes, actually, from uh, uh, number uh, 111. So the, for the sense desire, the Buddha says, um, and I, the, word, the word is Brahman, but I'm going to change that because that's usually a male, so I'm just going to change it to more gender, gender neutral. He says, suppose um, there is a bowl of water mixed with turmeric, blue dye and crimson dye. This is for sense desire. If a, if a person with good sight were to examine, examine their own facial reflection in the bowl of water, they would neither know nor see it as it really is. So too, when one dwells with a mind oppressed with sensual lust, on that occasion one neither knows nor sees as it really is one's own good or the good of others or the good of both. One gets entranced by the colors. One gets entranced by the beautiful dyes. 
so they can't really see their reflection, nor can they see their goodness. And that and this is the refrain that's repeated through each one. And I and I, I want to read read that because there's something the Buddha is really pointing to here that we can take into our heart. He says, suppose for aversion, this, this tight, contracted state of mind, suppose there is a bowl of water being heated over a fire, bubbling and boiling. If a man with if a person with good sight were to examine their own facial reflection in it, they would neither know nor see it as it really is. So too, when one dwells with a mind oppressed by ill will and aversion, on that occasion one neither knows nor sees as it really is one's own goodness or the goodness of others or the good of both. I think it's very interesting what the Buddha is pointing to here, what we really want to see, which has this quality of the citta, this heart, the heart-mind, this goodness that gets covered over, that we're not able to, to know, to feel, to sense. I really love this one on aversion because I go to New Zealand, I, I, where Yana is from, and they have these hot, these hot mud pools, and those mud pools are they're bubbling up from the earth and it's and this this mud is just boiling and bubbling and and you couldn't really go very near it cuz it's so hot and when i when i see those i just think the, the nature of my own mind to be able to be that hot and that heated and that kind of bubbling over and the buddha uses that particular um, simile of the of the of a of a bowl of water being heated over the fire with bubbling and boiling as the as the characteristic of that of that aversive mind. For sloth and torpor, this sleepiness, this tiredness, this dullness, where the, there's a, not enough energy to lift the mind. He says, suppose there is a bowl of water covered over with plants and algae. If a person with good sight were to examine their own facial reflection in it, they would neither know nor see it as it really is. Right? And I, that sense, too, of the, of, the, of the water just thick with plants and algae, it's just so, so uh, good to... We, we know that state, right? So, too, when one dwells with a mind oppressed by sloth and torpor, on that occasion, one neither knows nor sees, as it really is, one's own good or the good of others or the good of both. And for restlessness and worry, this opposite, where there's too much energy in the, in the, in the, in the system. Suppose there is a bowl of water stirred by the wind, stirred by the wind, rippling, swirling, churned into wavelets. If a person with good sight were to examine his own facial, her, their own facial reflection in it, they would neither know nor see it as it really is. So too, when one dwells with a mind oppressed by restlessness and worry, on that occasion one neither knows nor sees as it really is one's own good, or the good of others, or the good of both. 
And then the last one of doubt. Suppose there is a bowl of water that is turbid, turbid and unsettled and muddy, placed in the dark. <laughs> if a person with good sight were to examine their own facial reflection in it, they would neither know nor see it as it really is. Not only is it unsettled, muddy, but it's also placed in the dark. Right? <laughs> Can't see anything. <laughs> So, too, when one dwells with a mind oppressed by doubt, on that occasion one neither knows nor sees, as it really is, one's own good, or the good of others, or the good of both. So perhaps you have a feel for this weaving. It's kind of like this, this sense of how these, these difficult states of mind that we know so well, right? the desire and the aversion, ill will, the sleepiness and the restlessness and the doubt, how they can undermine and uh, overwhelm the mind so that we aren't able to access these beautiful qualities these, these beautiful powers of the mind that can be developed and strengthened to support more and more greater and greater awakening that leads to more freedom and liberation, insight, wisdom. And so with each one of these, with each one of these difficult mind states, there's a whole set of antidotes There's a whole set of ways that we can work with each one of those. That's why that talk itself could be a two-hour talk. Just talking about all those different strategies, all those different techniques to work with each one of those. And that's why, too, you know, we, this practice takes time. There's a lot to learn. It's not like, you know, we just sit down and, you know, the, the mind opens up. We learn how We learn lots of skillful means to work with all the different kinds of experiences that arise and learn learn ways to come into a wiser relationship so that we are able to have insight into the way things really are. Perhaps we won't take these so personally. It's not mine, it's not me, it's not myself what the Buddha says. It's just arising and passing conditions of mind. Perhaps we'll be able to see that impermanent nature, this insight, that things come and go. Things don't, they don't last. They're not permanent. Right? So we watch that the things have a beginning and a middle and an end. Everything comes to an end. Everything comes to an end. Even this mind and body, this entity, will come to an end. Consciousness will come to an end as we know it. Everything comes to an end. So when we really know that deeply, it's harder to hold on. It's harder to grasp, and the grasping that causes the dukkha, that causes 
that which is hard to bear sometimes because we're holding on so tight with our expectations and our judgments and our desires and our wants and our hopes and our fears. We let go. We let go into more trust and more confidence that things will be okay. I will be okay. There's a greater intelligent nature here that as much as possible I want to be able to give over to so I'm not as much in the way trying to control and manipulate the way things are but let go, open up allow more energy to flow so that I have more capacity then to bring these qualities forth So there's, there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot to understand. There's a lot to investigate. There's a lot to study, a lot to explore. And perhaps even you know, in saying that, we can be a little bit more patient with ourselves. You know, we do live in this kind of this culture that you know, wants things right away. You know, we want things now. We want what we want. We want what we want now. We're, we're cultivating this beautiful quality of letting go, which can only come about when there's a sense of trust, or faith, or confidence, whatever word works best for you. Because why else would we let go? We won't let go unless we know, we really know, that it'll be okay. If I let go, I'll be okay. So I'll end there. Just really, really hoping that you have a sense of that weaving. And really, what's possible for us that is modeled by the Buddha in his great awakening, his great liberation, and the compassion that came forth to offer what he understood to us. And here we are, 2,600 years later. And we're still experiencing the power of the Buddha's mind. That's the power of awakening. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. You could just stay the way you are.
May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with compassion. May all beings awaken to their deepest nature. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.